Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Our pulpit prayer this morning about the table being set and the wine being mixed is uh, from Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has set her table and she has mixed her wine. And now she calls, whoever is simple, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Come and eat of my bread. Come and drink of my wine. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk now in the way of insight. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And we pray. Lord, may we leave our simple ways and live. Lord, may we cease to eat at the table of the world. May we cease to drink from the cup of the world. And Lord Jesus, in the fear of the Lord, may we come to your table and eat and drink of true wisdom now as your word is opened. Amen. James chapter 5, verse 16. One verse we're going to cover this morning. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're going to cover one verse this morning, and I want to give you four reasons why this one verse is worthy of our attention. It's worthy of your attention. Four reasons. Number one, this verse is realistic, and I like this reason. Now, the first reason that this one verse is worthy of our attention is because this verse is realistic. James is one of the most realistic of the biblical authors. James is the kind of friend who would tell you if you needed a breath mint. He is not the kind of guy that's going to sweep things under the rug and that's going to pretend that problems aren't really problems. This verse is very realistic. Have you ever had the excruciatingly annoying experience, which I have had, of knowing there's a problem and going to the authority figure who is accountable for that problem only to be met with a plastic smile and them saying, there's no problem, have a nice day. That's an awful feeling. And James would have never been that kind of pastor. He lived in the real world. He didn't dodge difficult conversations. Now, why would James be the kind of leader who lived in the real world and didn't dodge difficult conversations? The only answer to that question is because James was a disciple of Jesus. And of anyone and everyone in the entire world, Jesus was the kind of leader who would not dodge difficult questions. And you know, every Jesus follower ought to be the same way. One of our biggest problems is that we're not. James was very concerned about the unity of the fellowship, about the integrity of the fellowship, and about the honesty of the fellowship. James knew, because he said in chapter 4, verse 1, that there could be quarrels 
and bitterness among members of the church. He didn't pretend that would never happen here. He knew that happened. James said that he was afraid or that he was concerned in chapter 3, verse 16, that jealousy and selfish ambition would take the place of purity and gentleness and sincerity and making peace. James was very realistic about the kinds of rebukes and the kinds of corrections that the church needed. And the reason James was realistic is because he was a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus is the most realistic teacher that ever walked among us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? He said this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus says, so if you are offering your gifts at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is so realistic. He, it's never okay with Jesus that we pretend that we're all fine when we know that we're not. He says you have to go to that person and have that difficult conversation, ask that awkward question to make it right. This verse is so realistic. Realistically, we need to confess our sin to God and realistically, we need to confess our sin, as James chapter 5, verse 16 says, to one another. The biblical word confess is a compound word, homo logeo, to the same thing to say. So to confess my sin is to say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. It's to say out loud the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin, which means that I call my sin what it is. It's not a mistake. It's not, well, my only problem was I tried too hard and I meant too well. It's a sin. I did what God commanded me not to do. I refused to do what God commanded me to do. And we need to confess our sin. You want to read more about the confession of sin? I'd encourage you to look up Psalm 32. I'd encourage you to look up Psalm 51. Listen to what 1 John, a very important text, 1 John 1 says about the confession of sin. I'm reading from 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin... Another way to translate that is if we refuse to confess our sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. This text is so realistic about the fact that we all sin we all need to confess our sin, not only to God, but also to each other, especially when we sin against each other. And it may seem like an obvious comment, but if you've been in church world for any length of time, you will agree with me that this obvious comment needs to be said and highlighted and, and underlined. The obvious comment is this. The text says, you are supposed to confess 
your sins. In church world, you confess her sins all the time. You confess his sins all the time. How many people, I don't know if it's reality, but their ostensible reason for leaving a church is because they, they feel like other people were confessing their sin and talking about them behind their back. James says, you confess your sin. As in, my sins lately have been these two sins. This is, this is where and this is how, and I confess them now. The first reason one verse is worthy of our attention this morning is because the te- this verse is realistic. Reason number two, this verse promotes the power of prayer. This verse promotes the power of prayer. Look at it in its context in verse 15 and then verse 16. Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then look at the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And between these, sandwiched between these two powerful statements of the power of prayer is verse 16a, therefore confess your sins to one another. That connection is so good. This text is endorsing and promoting the power of prayer. If one of the Milwaukee Bucks, like Giannis, will endorse a product, they are doing so because they're paid big money to endorse the product. But normal people, like you and me and James, we endorse something, especially to the people we love, because we know that it'll help them. This, this, this verse, in its context, is, is just about the most encouraging endorsement about the power of prayer. This is the logic from verse 15 to lock it into verse 16a and b. The logic is this. Since prayer, verse 15, is saving and is raising and is instrumental even in this expression and and experience of forgiveness, and since verse 16b, prayer is so powerful in its working since God is so eager to raise us up, since God is so ready to forgive our sins and bless us, we should all get in on the great blessing of these two things, praying for one another and confessing our sins to one another. The, the, instead of uh, being avoided, praying for one another and confessing our sins to one another is like the greatest thing that we can do. So this text is worthy of our attention because it promotes the power of prayer. Reason number three that one verse is worthy of our attention is this. This text is for anyone and everyone. This text is for anyone and everyone. We've talked about the elders in verse 14. The prayer of a righteous person in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person in verse 16 doesn't mean the prayer of a church leader. It just means the prayer of any member of the church who is now righteous in Jesus Christ. And even what he says about Elijah, he takes Elijah off a pedestal and he says he's, he, he has a nature just like ours. So this verse specifically and explicitly from the details of the text belongs to every member of the church meaning the normal, average, doesn't have it all together church member in row number nine. It's not saying that you have to be super righteous. It's saying you have to be in Christ. 
You have to be confident that your sins are forgiven by Christ, and then you have to just be in relationship with other church members who are normal and imperfect just like you. This text is for anyone and everyone. And a fourth reason why this text is worthy of our meditation is that this verse says we need each other, and that's something that we need to hear all the time. This verse says we need each other because this verse is not a private confession of my sin to God on my knees when when no one else is awake late at night. God is involved here, but this, this verse says that I confess my sin to you and you hear that confession and you pray for me and together we connect with God. This text says that we need each other and you know that's true. You know, about a year before uh, we had a closed church or we closed church for a little while because of COVID. About a year before that, we went together through Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. And Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we all will come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our confession until the end. What the Spirit of God taught us from Hebrews chapter three is something that the maybe hard providence of God showed us in 2020 and even on into the beginning of 2021. Because I know people, and probably you know people too, who because of whatever cluster of reasons withdrew from the fellowship of the saints. And in that isolation, they stumbled into significant ongoing patterns of sin. Sins of drunkenness. Sins of pornography, of binging on Netflix or whatever their streaming thing is with things that they know they shouldn't be looking at. Sins of anxiety raged almost out of control last year. Sins of a a sort of a bitterness that comes from being isolated and kind of because you're isolated, you begin to think that everyone is wrong except for you in their opinion about everything. That's a sin. Sins of hatred. A sin of a, a sort of almost idolatry of safety, where the only thing that matters is my physical health. That matters, but that's not the only thing that matters. We just get skewed. Sins of slothful, lazy self-indulgence. Another sin that often cropped up is because of isolation, there there becomes a sin almost of bitterness because, well, I, I haven't been and nobody from there has reached out and gotten me back yet and this sort of bitterness of, of, of neglect and, and loneliness. So many sins received almost a a steroid dose due to just the hard providence that we went through together. This text says we need each other, and this text is true. It also shows us, again, as, you know, reason number about 29, that listening to a podcast, watching something on an iPad is, is good, but it's not enough. We need to be here and we need to be here together and we need to be in each other's lives. There's nothing like a service like this where the praises are sung and the word is opened. I I really believe with all of my heart that actually in corporate worship, like right now, 
Sin appears in all of its folly because this is the place where wisdom has laid out her table and laid out her mixed wine and she has said, listen, come and live. And wisdom wants to show us how plausible and yet how perverse the world is. And then before the service and after the service, there is something just about standing around and talking about how we're doing and how we can pray for each other. And then, of course, involvement in an, in an adult Bible fellowship where the practical discussion of the application of the word takes place and we pray together. We need these relationships. We need each other. Now, realistically, I know that you're not going to open up about the deepest sins in your life to 800 random people who you don't know. And I don't expect you to. I don't think James expects you to. This is, I mean, we could prove it biblically, I suppose, like from the ministry of Jesus where he had the, the 70 and the 12 and the 3. But what we see in these narratives as if we need a biblical proof for it is just the, the truth of, of humanity. That it's really good for us to have 200 acquaintances that we can ask them how they're doing and we can pray for each other. And then it's really good for us to have 10 or so friends who we can really open up with. And then it's actually good to have two or three really close friends who we can confess everything to. We need each other. We need each other. That's the fourth reason why this one verse is worthy of our attention. Do you have, do you have 20, 30, 40 people around here who you could say hey to on a Sunday morning and ask them how they're doing? I hope you do. And then do you have two or three Christian friends who you can really open up about the hardest things in your heart about? Well, in addition to the four reasons why this one verse is worthy of our attention, I want to give you some some ways to apply this. The first three are kind of inside, working on your heart, and the second two will be more outside what, what you do with your mouth and what you do with your hands. So three internal things to work on to really apply this verse. Number one, it requires an honest heart. It requires an honest heart. What James is driving at from chapter one on through is an honest and unmixed and undivided heart. He says, when you pray, don't, don't fill your heart with doubt. Fill your heart with faith. And when, when you say that you have faith, don't just say it and, and be false to it. Honestly, show your faith by the way you care for the marginalized and the poor and the needy. It requires an honest heart. One of the best verses about this is 1 John 1, 6 and 7. 1 John 1, verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie. We have a dishonest heart and we have dishonest lips. We lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1, 6 and 7. This is what, first, what, what John means by walking in the light is having an honest heart. Having an honest heart. To have an honest heart means you don't shove 
your sin in a closet and pretend it's not there. You're honest about it with God and then you're honest about it with the people you've sinned against or even if you didn't sin against them, you're honest about it with those in your life who you want to help hold you accountable. Mark down this verse, Proverbs 28, 13. It's about covering and uncovering. And it says, all we silly human beings think if we cover things, they'll get better. But God's wisdom says only if you uncover it, will it get better. You know that's, you know that, you know that is such hardcore truth for us that we deny with our sort of emotional self-defensiveness. Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. Whoever covers over his transgression will not prosper. Whoever is dishonest about his transgression will not prosper. That's Proverbs 28, 13a. And here's Proverbs 28, 13b. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who confesses and uncovers them and is honest about them will find compassion. The irony is that you are dishonest honest about your sin in an effort to protect yourself and lead yourself into the blessing of not having anybody know anything bad about you. But the irony is that in your dishonesty about your sin, you're removing yourself from any chance or any hope of blessing. Because God's word has said those who cover and are dishonest about their sin will never find that pathway of blessing. But those who are honest about it will find compassion, forgiveness. We're dishonest about our sins because we would hide our sins from God. Question, church, who is the only one who can take care of sin? Why would you hide your sin from the only one who can take care of your sin? We're like a son or daughter and mom, for school, mom gave us $50 for some school fee that we had to pay and we took that $50 to the mall and we just spent it. Now we're at the end of the semester and if that fee isn't paid, we will fail the entire semester. And mom, at the end of the semester, has another $50 bill in her hand. And she says, was, was there a problem? Was there a problem with the first $50 that I gave you? Do you, do you need $50 to, to, to get through this semester? And we say, oh, oh, me? No way. You gave me $50. It's fine. And we walk away and we fail the entire semester. But the, the money was there. And all we had to do was say, yes, I blew it. Could you please help me? You know, God loves to hear his children say, yes, I blew it. Can you please help me? Why on earth would you cover your sin? There's mercy and grace in Jesus. Why would you hide your sin from him? And if you, and you should, if you're a covenant member of the church, you are in close relational proximity to women and men who are filled with the spirit of Jesus. They are not gonna harm you when you confess your sin to them. Not if they're filled with the spirit of Jesus. They're going to help you. So first, this requires an honest heart. Second, this requires a humble heart. This requires a humble heart. Look at James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. God gives more grace. Oh, when we sin, God gives grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Not only does this verse require an honest heart, but this verse also requires a humble heart. And I'm telling you, humility is sanity. Any lack of humility is to that extent the presence of insanity. Humility for human beings like us is sanity. Here is an ancient truism. They that know God will be humble. And they that know themselves cannot be proud. Is that not true, church? They that know God will be humble. And they that know themselves cannot be proud. Because God is who he is. The wonderful sanity of humility in the fear of the Lord floods my life when I see God for who he is. And because you are who you are, because you're a daughter of Eve, a son of Adam, a sinner through and through, because you are who you are, if you see yourself, you will be flooded with the sanity of humility. If it is hard for you to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. If it is hard for you to say, I was wrong, I am sorry, you are an insane person. You're unreliable. And the people around you would do well to distance themselves from you. If it's hard for you to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, then you do not have a humble heart. And may I tell you as directly as I can, a person like you needs a humble heart needs a humble heart, needs a humble heart because you're often wrong and there's a way out of that. It's a humble heart that's honest about its failings. A humble heart and an honest heart, maybe combine these two, an honest heart and a humble heart means specificity about my sin, specificity about my sin. I don't know why, but one of our favorite words is struggling. I've been struggling. What does that even mean? What does that mean? I've been struggling. In, in generality, there's anonymity. In specificity, there's humility and real help. Specificity is where we get the help that we need. I don't know what your doctor visits are like, but I know what my doctor visits are like. Are you happy with a doctor visit where you go into the doctor's office and she's there, she looks at you and says, are you a human being, homo sapiens? Yeah, doctor, I am. So she just throws open the cupboards, randomly grabs a bottle of this and a, and a, ba and a bag of these pills, throws them at you and says, because you're a human, in general, humans are helped by these things, goodbye. When you go to the doctor, the one thing you insist on is specificity. See me, know my pains, tell me what I need for, for help for me. 
Church, church, church for crying out loud. Why would we insist on that specificity for our bodies and be totally general about the sins of our spirit? What a worldly, ungodly, loser thing to do. We want specificity in help for our heart, for our spirit, for our soul, for our mind. And honesty and humility of heart means specificity about your sin. This requires an honest heart. This requires a humble heart. Number three, this requires a forgiving heart. This requires a forgiving heart. Certainly in context, when James tells the church members in verse 16, confess your sins to one another, a big part of that is when this church member has sinned against that church member, they have, then he or she has to confess it to them. And James is getting at that. He, he alludes to that, or he specifically says that, like in 3, 16 and 17, where he says to make peace with each other by being merciful to each other when we fail each other, to overcome our quarrels, he says, in chapter 4, verse 1. So certainly it requires forgiveness when you have been sinned against or you're the one who sinned the other. You're seeking forgiveness. You know, a wonderful verse that you ought to memorize is Ephesians 4, verse 32. I hope many of you have that in memory already. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, so you forgive one another. So this requires a forgiving heart question. When someone sins against you, are you eager to forgive them? Question. When someone sins against you, are you eager to forgive them? You know what that question that I just asked you is? Literally, literally, that question I just asked you is this. Is the spirit of Jesus in you or not? That's that question. Because the one thing we know about Jesus is that he was so eager to forgive us that he bled and died to do it. And if you want to tell me that the spirit of Jesus lives in you and you are not eager to forgive others, I don't get it and I don't believe you. When someone sins against you, are you eager to forgive them? A heart that is eager to reconcile. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to leave you twisting in the wind so you'll learn your lesson for eight weeks and then I'll come around and maybe let you kiss me on the cheek. I'm going to go to you and we're going to make it right, right away. I was with one of our members like a couple of weeks ago. It was this, it was this month or it was the last week of last month. He asked to meet with me. I was like, sure. And when we met, what he said was, I have a problem with you. <laughs> I am upset with you. And he told me the reason why he was upset. And believe it or not, my reply was, I understand why you're upset with me. And uh, I should have handled what you're talking about better. I'm sorry that I didn't handle what you're talking about better. And then I said this, will you please forgive me? And he said, yes, and we're fine. 
Like, this, this, this is not the first time that I've done that this year, and it won't be the last. This, this, is, this is the reality of our relationships one with another. You know, church, this globe is covered. I was thinking about this when I was driving this week. Just turned off the radio and just thought, this, this globe is covered with people who are grim and gray and their relationships are wrecked and they're in a, almost a sort of forced servitude to things they did and said in the past all because they are unwilling to say, I was wrong, I should have done better, I'm sorry. And their refusal to say that puts them in some sort of indentured servitude to the mistakes or sins or failings that they did in the past. Churches are absolutely brutalized by elders who would do that, who won't say, we should have handled that differently. We're sorry, please pray for us. It ought to be the easiest thing in the world for those of us who believe in total universal depravity to say, oh yeah, I'm included in that. <laughs> I'm not gonna get everything right. Churches will make it if we have hearts that are honest and that are eager to forgive. Well, if those are the three heart issues, maybe a couple of, of kind of how to do this to work on, maybe just two. Number one, work at receiving and giving. Work at receiving and giving correction, rebuke, confession. That is, work on receiving a, a, a word of someone saying, hey, I think you might have sinned. Hey, I think I'm upset with you and this is the reason why. Work at receiving that and also work on being willing and courageous to give that. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another. We are to admonish one another. Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, knowing that you yourselves are able to admonish one another. Work at be, being willing to give that faithful rebuke or that faithful question. And then also work on receiving it. Question. How ready are you to receive a rebuke or a correction? And... Uh, just wake up for a minute, then you can go back to sleep. When I ask you the question, how ready are you to receive a rebuke or a correction, the last person in the world who I would trust to answer that question is you. So what I mean is today, ask your spouse, ask your best friend, ask a coworker, hey, be honest with me. How ready am I to receive a rebuke or a correction? Am I approachable? Am I open? Man, I've known people. Have you known these people? Man, I've known people who, they, when you make the smallest correction to them, they are like so kind of phony, needy, and sensitive about it, or they are so aggressive and angry about it that they make it absolutely painful for anyone to approach them with anything at any time. And they're only consigning themselves to a life of misery. They're losing out on everything they could have had. How many times did the book of Proverbs say a wise man welcomes reproof? Psalm 141, Psalm 141. Oh, let the righteous smite me and it will be a kindness to me. Let the righteous man reprove me and it will be excellent oil upon me. The most valuable thing I could receive is that 
So work on giving that exhortation and work on receiving that exhortation. That's the first thing. And then secondly, I'd say ask these kinds of questions. And I included these in the notes, which you can pick up online. Uh, most of them I just cribbed directly from John Wesley, who, has, who had a wonderful little method on this. And a couple of them I wrote myself. But here's some ideas. Uh, number one. Does the Bible live in me today? Or if you're talking to someone, does the Bible live in you today? Not did you have a quiet time, you know, not, not are you ahead or behind on your checking your boxes. Does the word of God, is the word of God living and active in you today? Number two, this is a demanding question to ask a friend. What have you held back from God that you think you need to surrender? What have you held back from God that you think you need to surrender? Number three, is there anything you're doing that your conscience is troubling you about? What a sweet question for one friend to ask another. Is there anything in your life that is dampening your zeal for Christ, that's sprinkling water on the fire for Christ in your life? Another question, this, this one would fix a lot of relationships or it would temporarily make them worse and then fix them in the end, I don't know. Is there anyone whom I dislike or hold resentment toward? And if so, what am I gonna do about it in Jesus? Is there anyone that I dislike or hold resentment toward? And if so, what am I gonna do about it in Jesus? No place, no place for writing people off. Certainly no place for anything approaching like classism or racism where we just, we, we just have a, a, a wrong view about a whole group of people. Is there anyone whom I dislike or hold resentment toward? And if so, what am I gonna do about it in Jesus? A good question to ask one another is simply, uh, who have you talked to about Jesus Christ this week? Who have you talked to about Jesus Christ this week? These kinds of questions open up opportunities for us to speak to one another, to love one another, and to help one another. And you know, this, the reason that this one verse is worthy of our attention this morning is because, if I could put it this way, this is what makes the church the church. This is what makes the church the church. What makes a, what makes a fish and chips place a fish and chips place? Probably the fact that they serve fish and chips. And they get that fry right where it's not soggy, but it's crispy on the outside and all the way done on the inside. It takes, it, takes, it takes some work for that. What makes a frozen custard place a frozen custard place? Not, not, not just that they serve custard, but they get their custard right. You know, sometimes it's so cold that it's icy and it doesn't taste creamy. It has to be super cold, but also very creamy. What makes a church a church? You know, if you work at Insincorator, everybody in your office could collect money for somebody who needs a surgery. And we can do that in your ABF, but that's not what makes the church the church. If you work in the, in the Racine Unified School District, everybody that works together, you could go over and do the yard work for someone in your office that has a broken leg or whatever. That's a good thing to do. In fact, we know people, unregenerate, not yet born again people, who hold each other accountable to quit drinking or to overcome a gambling addiction. 
And that's a good thing for those unsaved people to do, to, to overcome that, that habit which would harm them and harm the people that they love. I'm, I'm not against that. That's a healthy and beautiful thing to do. But what is it that makes the church the church? Beloved, it is the grace of God in Jesus Christ that makes the church the church. It is grace and truth that abound in Jesus Christ. That's what makes the church the church. In a healthy church, we receive grace and we give grace to one another. We admit that we're sinners and Jesus saves sinners. And we extend that, that we extend the good news of that salvation and the warmth of that grace to one another. And so we regularly forgive one another. That's what makes the church the church. When we confess our sin to Jesus and we confess our sin to one another. Because we know that we failed to obey. And because God is worthy of all obedience, we, we have to confess that to God. But now that we're part of the church, we believe that Christ died for us. Beloved, the story of the Bible is the story of the world. The world was created so that the Son of God would have a bride and he would wash her with his blood so she would be spotless and beautiful and his forever. That's who we are. That's what makes us who we are. And it's that grace, that confession and forgiveness that we receive in Jesus that we so regularly communicate toward one another that makes us who we are. Therefore, Racine Bible, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your wisdom, you have laid out the table, the mixed wine, and you have said, come and eat, come and drink. And now we would continue to come. Lord Jesus, as you have fed us by your word, oh, may we receive it. I pray for your precious lambs, your precious sheep. Remove the doubt. Remove the unbelief. Remove the excuses. Remove the, well, that's good for her or for him, but not for me. And let each one of us come and receive your word and be changed thereby. For your glory, we ask this. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.